0: This is Doc Vader, the most powerful clinician in the galaxy. You are
1: listening to the Inside the Boards podcast. The Force is moderately to severely strong with this one. Vader out. The illness is not an indulgence which you should pay for. There is there a crime for which you should be punished. With this conviction, of am danger my health. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today we have another USMLE question breakdown with Brian Radavansky from Med School Tutors. This is pretty high yield. You can check out a similar question breakdown teaching you some excellent question strategy on last week's episode. And don't forget, at the end of August, we are going to be running a Step 2 and Clerkship Study Smarter series over on our Study Smarter channel, which you can find on any podcatcher. Just search Inside the Boards Study Smarter without any delay. Let's get right into the content. A 67-year-old male presents to the emergency department with
0: a two-day history of progressively worsening cough. This is uh, a lot of my students probably get sick of hearing that because they know they're going to get through the first sentence or might be building a little momentum and then I slam on the brakes. So unlike that last one where we had a healthy 24-year-old girl, now we have that elderly Gentleman, and he, what is his main problem? He has a progressively worsening cough. So for something like this, the recommendation that I have for students is, have in your mind, I have an old person who is coughing. What might be causing that? And at least have a, a short differential of the common causes of a cough in an older person. Pneumonia. Anything? Yeah, boom, that's a great one. Anything else? COPD. Surely. Asthma. CHF. Yeah,
1: well. Definitely. How about uh, something
0: simple like bronchitis? Yeah, maybe he's just got a cold and he's uh, making an over and said, let me just get this checked out in the ED because that's where I go when I'm feeling under the weather. Post nasal drip. Yeah, we'll throw GERD in there. Maybe he's got, you know, a little laryngotracheal bronchitis from whatever is coming up from, uh, from down below that nasty stomach acid. So Tuberculosis, now... no. <laughs> but that actually, um, I think, brings up a good point.
1: Although you probably should have a very broad differential when you see these patients in real life. Does that first sentence help us exclude certain things because of the way the patient presents on a USMLE style vignette?
0: So just from that single sentence, it's hard to start making exclusions. And we always recommend that you cast a wide net up front and keep your differential broad. Let the information that comes in as we go forth help you narrow things down and eliminate things from that list.
1: Well, I guess what I'm asking is this. Do you think that when question writers say something like this patient presents to the emergency department, even though all of us know people use the emergency department for their primary care for all sorts of non-acute diseases. Does that information kind of direct you and help you trust that this is going to be a more serious uh, acute cause because it's presented that way on
0: an exam? I think that is a pretty fair assumption to make, that the test writers, as annoying as they may seem because they're writing questions all day long just to uh, give you something fun to do and take your thousand dollars here and there. They are never trying to trick you. They are usually straight shooting and maybe one question out of the 350 that you'll have on your test day will have a little snarky thing which leads you down the wrong path. But for the most part... Things should be pretty straightforward. You're not going to get that super rare presentation of a particular disease. It should be the more textbook thing. So if somebody's coming to the ED, you can assume that they are at least triaged into that, oh, this person is more sick than somebody who is there for their routine checkup, is there walking into their primary care doctor at a sick visit. All right, cool. So shall I go on?
1: Yes. All right. So past medical history is positive for poorly controlled hypertension. 30-pack-year history of smoking, well-controlled diabetes, and a STEMI
0: four years prior. All right. So now we've really framed this 67-year-old guy. I say, is he like the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, William shatner face, unaging guy, or is he, uh, has his body been through the works? And it seems more like the latter.
1: Yeah, he's, he's a got... weathered dude.
0: Yes. And you could almost close your eyes and you see like what this guy looks like. You probably had a patient or numerous patients like him. And when we look at his comorbidities, he's got the smoking history. So what does that make you think this guy's been smoking for 30 years and coughing?
1: I mean, I'm getting excited based on that hypertension history of heart attack and smoking. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this guy's going to have COPD, CHF, some sort of maybe cardiomyopathy,
0: something Mm -hmm. of that uh, nature. Yeah, he has a number of disease processes which are beating up on his blood vessels, hypertension, constantly pounding with sheer forces, smoking, atherosclerotic disease we can almost assume is going to go along with all this, diabetes causing microvascular damage. And we've gone so far as to say, hey, his vessels were bad enough to cause ischemia four years ago. Why not again today?
1: All right. So his complaints are a mild, sharp chest pain when coughing some shortness of breath while walking around his apartment, and
0: lightheadedness when standing up. Okay, so we get some more important information here. We have somebody with, for all intents and purposes, a heart that's probably not so great, and now we have, we see the words chest pain in there. and yep. you know That, in and of itself, this person comes to the ED, they're 100% going to get an EKG. We have to make sure that they're not having an MI today. But there's something special about this type of chest pain, which I think you mentioned.
1: Yeah, it's it sounds like it's only occurring while
0: coughing. Right. And that's a super important thing because a lot of people come into the ED with chest pain. We cannot afford to miss any ischemic chest pain. But what do you think as far as ischemia and the chest pain that he's having today? I would say it sounds more non-ischemic. Right. We have a, a pretty good source for it. He says, ah, every time I cough, my chest hurts. That happens to most people. And usually they're not saying and if it's just that general, oh, I'm coughing, so it hurts a little bit, when they comment on it like this, this kind of falls into that box of pleuritic chest pain, and, uh, you get a real sharp pain with each irritation of the pleura. Yeah, and, this were... I, and I imagine,
1: Sorry. you know, I, I would say this is probably not the extent of the pathophysiology, but like we like to use here a lot of heuristics, if somebody's coughing, things are rattling around, things are moving, I imagine, inside the chest cavity. So the pleura move he, when he coughs, and that's why he's getting this pain. So I'm going to be looking for something that is going to involve the lung pleura. And uh, uh, is that fair, or am I, am I yeah, uh, it's a, being too much of an OBGYN gyn and uh, less of a <laughs> general doctor?
0: So we don't want to put all our eggs in, into the uh, rattling pleuritic basket now, but we do have a pretty good sense that That's going to be a better cause for it than something like an ischemic demand chest pain where if he has that predictable, oh, I was going up the stairs, it hurt when I got to the top, I chilled out there for a little while, I felt better. That does not seem to be the pattern that he's having here. All
1: right. Vitals. They are a heart rate
0: of 114,
1: blood pressure of 100 over 55, a respiratory rate of 26, temperature of 101.9. An O2 sat of 86% on four liters of oxygen by nasal cannula. Okay, what do you make of this set of vitals, Patrick? Well, I would say he is uh, not exchanging oxygen very well. Um, mm-hmm. The fever um, makes me uh, think we may have an infectious process going on here. So now more and more I'm starting to think, I bet this is going to be a pneumonia and maybe even a significant pneumonia leading to on the way to sepsis um, because his heart rate's up, he's breathing really fast, maybe he's got some ARDS picture, and his blood pressure looks like it's uh, coming on the low side given his history of poorly controlled hypertension.
0: Those are kind of the
1: things going through my mind right now.
0: Yeah, I'd say as a whole, this is a concerning set of vital signs. This is a patient who you see in the ED and you like put that red flag on him for, oh, this guy, he's sick. We got to get to him. We got to keep an eye on him. We can't let him kind of fester in the corner, get him a room. Let's start working him up. And like you mentioned, we have a guy who has a history of poorly controlled hypertension, likely walking around on the outside, I don't know, 150s, 160s systolic. So when he's coming in hypotensive, that is definitely a concerning thing. Uh, The tachypnea, He's breathing at a rate of 26. It's so easy for us to kind of dismiss that vital sign because everybody's just going to look at somebody and say, eh, yeah, it looks like 14 or 16 or some <laughs> even number between 12 and 20. You'll notice nobody ever breathes an odd number of times per minute. It's a good Don't point. ask me why. Yeah, good point. Yeah. So <laughs> a concerning set of vital signs, to say the least. And febrile, definitely thinking something infectious. But I'm still not ready to dismiss that something is going on with his heart given hypotension. Maybe it's not sepsis. Maybe it is uh, some cardiogenic shock, which is backing fluid up into the lungs, causing that poor O2 sat, causing that tachypnea. All right. So hopefully the physical
1: exam uh, helps uh, focus things. And he is significant. Findings are significant for a general ill appearance. Decreased breath sounds in the right lower chest tachypnea, tachycardia, and the use of accessory muscles of breathing. He is somewhat alert and oriented only to person and place. Ooh, that's not good.
0: Mm, starting to slip whether it's because, well, all in all, he's probably not getting enough oxygen to his brain. Is it because his heart's not filling well and not producing enough forward output? Is he too vasodilated so he can't generate enough pressure? Is his oxygen-carrying capacity just down because he is hypoxic? Who's to say?
1: All right. So ABG now. He's got a pH of 7.29, PCO2 of 60, and a PO2 of 69.
0: Okay, what do you make of that? line up there. Uh,
1: that is something that I always try to ignore now. And probably one of the reasons <laughs> I went into, especially that doesn't require so much incisive thinking for um, actual patient care. But um, from what, what I would, uh, remember, I guess the PCO2 should be around 40, correct? Mm-hmm. So that yeah. is uh, elevated. And Mm -hmm. our pH is 7.28 to 732. Is that right? Something like that? Uh,
0: Normal should be right around 7.4 on an ABG.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's totally what I meant to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So 7.4. So he is acidotic. Mm -hmm. And it's a, I'm thinking, respiratory acidosis because of the elevated CO2. And the PO2 uh, should be higher, right?
0: Um, yes, we definitely wanted on somebody breathing room air, probably around hundred. Uh, this guy, because he has lung disease might live at a lower level, but once we slap on four liters of nasal cannula and expect that his FiO2 instead of being 21%, like the air that you and I are breathing right now should be closer to 40, 50, almost 60% with that nasal cannula. So this is definitely a pretty poor oxygen extraction, given the amount of oxygen that's getting delivered.
1: Okay, so they do the EKG that you said they would, and this shows Q waves in the inferior leads, and that's all they tell us. So, to me, that's like, uh, okay, that might be a red herring testing whether or not I know the significance of a Q wave, which indicates uh, prior myocardial infarction.
0: Yeah, and they wouldn't have a STEMI on there and not tell you and say, oh, yeah, we didn't mention that there was no STEMI. So maybe there was. Now that goes back to there being no tricks about this. They're giving you straight up information. He's got Q waves. He had an old infarct that we know about that they told us earlier in the question. So nothing new or scary there, which is really important because with that and the history that we've gone through, we've more or less ruled out ischemia as a cause of this chest pain. That said, when this guy comes into whoever's ED and he gets his full set of labs, he's gonna get your opponents to rule it out again just because we cannot afford to miss that ischemic chest pain should be a really strange presentation of it. But for the purposes of the test where things are straight shooting, doesn't sound ischemic in nature.
1: Yeah, and uh, I guess we could keep in mind, uh, perhaps there would be a way to present a vignette that does show atypical chest pain in certain categories of people with the big one being women. And uh, those who have diabetes or some other impaired autonomic control of uh, the heart, correct? Or autonomic uh, input to the heart. Exactly. But in in this case, the well-controlled diabetes probably means that we can ignore that. And so I'm really thinking this is going to be a pulmonary process.
0: Yeah, it definitely. Like you said, we're hypotensive. We are tachycardic. Sounds pretty septic. We... Do we have a source of infection well we've got some jumped up lungs sadly we don't have a chest x-ray to say oh there's a goober bottom right corner uh, you'll i would find say
1: it... of course we don't have a chest
0: x-ray that shows that <laughs> right yeah <laughs> then, then it would be a little too easy they do make you think a little bit because if they gave you the gold standard complete workup it would probably be a little bit too simple all right so the question that we have
1: here, the interrogatory is which of the following is most likely to improve the patient's clinical status? So now I'm a little bummed because I'm like, all right, I just want to see answer choices like, or I, I want to see a question, what's the most likely diagnosis? And then I want one pulmonary process and four other (laughs) non-pulmonary processes so I can tick the correct answer and move on. But as often happens, this becomes a second, third-order question by asking you to make the diagnosis or a likely diagnosis and then comment or synthesize that information into a treatment plan or some other derivative information. So which of the following is most likely to improve the patient's clinical status? We're gonna be looking for treatments. And here is A, dobutamine, B, furosemide, C, doxycycline, D, vancomycin and piperacillin-tazabactam, E, pleurocentesis, and F, aspirin and heparin. All right, so I will tell you, being at my level of training, which I imagine puts me somewhat like the end of a second year med student, at this point for this particular kind of uh, clinical presentation. This is gonna be the type of question I would be approaching answer choice by answer choice, trying to rule things out. Not a bad
0: way to go. Don't sell yourself short. You're still a doctor, you gotta know. I guess you don't have to know, but you should know. How are you gonna help this guy? So I'm gonna say dobutamine,
1: nah, because I am used to seeing that in the context of ICU admitted patients. Who have way complicated uh, sorts of causes of shock, and he doesn't seem to be quite in fulminant shock. B furosemide, okay, but that seems to be likely only to treat more of a you know general fluid on the lungs kind of picture, rather than this more localized, uh, as they put it, in the physical exam, decreased breath sounds in the right lower chest. C, doxycycline. I'm going to say mm, probably not. It is an antibiotic and l- unlikely to treat what sounds to me or what I'm expecting to be a pneumonia. I haven't looked at this question yet, by the way, on purpose. D, vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam. Mm, I like that one because it sounds like a great treatment for pneumonia. Uh, Pleurocentesis, again, I think I'd be expecting there to be bilateral findings indicating like pulmonary edema uh, for us to end up doing that. Aspirin and heparin, I think I can just rule that out because I don't think this is a cardiac cause. So my candidate answers that I'm going to think about if I'm taking this test are going to be furosemide, vancomycin, piperacillin, tazabactam, and maybe I'll, but less likely doxycycline and or pleurocentesis. So have I eliminated uh, two of the incorrect ones and am I ready as a student to kind of think through now the remaining four answer choices?
0: Yes, you are getting warmer, no doubt about it.
1: All right, now, now let's say I'm all confused, which... Um, I think it's a fair assessment. I'm mildly confused. I'm like, oh man, there's there's so much here. How do I drill down and find out, you know, confidently what is that
0: answer choice? What are the things I should look at, rule out each of these? Excellent question. First thing, kind of like we were talking about earlier, is severity. This guy, we said, oh, he's an old guy, he's got a number of diseases, and he's coming to the ED. Something's probably up, which is gonna necessitate packing a punch, giving a a good, strong treatment. Then we went and we saw his vitals, and we said, oh, yeah, this guy definitely is sick. He's approaching a sepsis versus septic shock, depending on how his blood pressure would respond to uh, fluid boluses. Ah,
1: so here's one. I would say, going back, and this is probably what I would do on a test, I see his blood pressure is 100 over 55, so I'm going to probably scratch off furosemide uh, Mm -hmm. because I don't want his uh, blood pressure to drop anymore.
0: Yeah, he's already hypotensive. If we give furosamine and he does have a brisk diuresis, uh, there's a good chance that we're going to take away preload unless he was so overtly fluid overloaded that that was indeed causing left ventricular dilation and supplying less blood to the heart. But that starts to get pretty esoteric. What you're saying is fine. We're hypotensive. We don't want to pull fluid out of this guy's vasculature and drive him further, especially if our consideration for treatment is actually going to be giving him fluid. Okay. So I interrupted you, but continue. Sure. So when uh, we look at these choices, one that I think kind of falls in that second tier of being a little too gentle as far as we need an aggressive treatment is doxycycline, yep. which is a great drug. It works for a number of conditions. It's remember the one that kind of gets into those intracellular non standard gram positive, gram negative, but more of those ones that don't fit the bill, like a rickettsia, like a Lyme disease, Borrelia, and a number of causes of more your walking pneumonia, something like a chlamydia pneumonia or a mycoplasma for that 20-year-old college student who's just kind of been under the weather and coughing and maybe a 99.0 fever for the last month. Yep. And I would
1: say that those sort of considerations are exactly what on further kind of uh, inquiry into my medical education, I'd say, yeah, I'm not convinced it's doxycycline. And if I had to choose between two antibiotics, I don't see a classic atypical pneumonia picture of which you, you know, you listed a few of them. So I'm going to scratch off doxycycline too.
0: Okay. So now we're down to DNA. We have a combination of vancomycin and piperacillin-tazobactam, which you might hear in the ED, vanzocin as they say, oh, this person needs antibiotics, thanks, Or we've got pleurocentesis, which is, again, uh, fits the bill for aggressiveness. Now, when you think about pleurocentesis, if we do know that a pleural effusion is causing this problem, or we have a big, nasty empyema, some pus growing in that pleural space, that will likely need to get tapped. But like we said earlier, we don't have a chest X-ray. Yep. So we aren't going to just grab a needle and do a 1860s medicine percussion and say, oh, I think this is the spot to go after. Uh, Even your most rural hospital is going to have access to a chest x-ray. It might not be a radiologist on call ready to take a quick peek at it, but somebody in the ED would definitely be able to say, hey, there's something maybe worth going after. But that's probably starting to err on the too aggressive side of things, especially without first obtaining imaging.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that uh, in terms of your study for any board exam type test, it seems to me that pleurocentesis is going to be correct in only a very, very few specific instances, uh, which I don't think I could necessarily articulate now, but uh,
0: you probably could for the, the
1: medical student level.
0: Um, Yeah. One good one that comes to mind is if it were a question where you had somebody with a pleural effusion and the question was, what is going to be most helpful in diagnosing the disease process? Taking a pulling that fluid off and taking a look at it is going to give you important information as to whether or not you have that classic dichotomy of an exudative pleural effusion, right, which would be a exudative or a transudative, just kind of over pushing those pulmonary capillaries where the lymphatic system can't keep up and just more of an oncotic fluid shifting as opposed to the exudative ones where you're actually having protein leakage, some capillary breakdown and some nastiness getting through that sieve.
1: All right, so my reflex uh, answer of vancomycin and uh, piperacillin tasabactam is
0: correct? That is correct. All right, You've got so. a guy who is at least septic, likely from a pneumonia cause. We see he is hypoxic. He's tachypneic. He's got decreased breath sounds. He's febrile. Everything is pointing towards an infectious picture. Despite some of his cardiac history, even people that have had heart attacks are going to get other disease processes affecting other organ systems. All right. So
1: I guess the only question I would have here is uh, more on a general how to approach pneumonia on an exam level. Um, mm-hmm. this guy comes from the community. So doesn't he just have community acquired pneumonia? Why am I not seeing just, uh, you know, like ceftriaxone, azithromycin as the, uh, the option?
0: So if that were an option, then we would have a much more difficult question here. We would start to be splitting hairs and starting to call in the clinical judgment of that ED physician, which says, how sick is this guy? And since we just have what we see on this piece of paper here, and we know that he is indeed septic, we're probably going to say we can't afford to miss any bug that would not get covered by ceftriaxone and azithromycin. The main one that sticks out, do you remember what vancomycin is going to cover that the others are not? MRSA, right? Exactly. Or staff. Right. That that nasty MRSA pneumonia that's going to be so incredibly virulent that people are going to tank over the course of hours to maybe a day vancomycin, pipericillin, tazobactam is going to cover everything that ceftraxone, azithromycin will cover, and then some. So in this guy and who the we're giving... would
1: give be, would um, be—oh, sorry to interrupt, but— No problem. Uh, the Piptazo would be, you know, some of the, you know, really kind of rare or things that would more likely affect somebody with immunocompromise. Uh, the big one I'm thinking is
0: uh, Pseudomonas, is that Exactly. Correct? Okay. Yeah. So that's going to give us really great gram-negative coverage. And uh, between that and vancomycin, we'll cover just about all the bases. We don't have to go into the the bag of tricks of those next-level big guns, antibiotics that really ravage other organ systems along with the virulent bacteria. So will this guy eventually end up on ceftriaxone, azithromycin? There's a very good chance of that. But when he steps foot in the ED and we say, hey, this guy needs antibiotics that are going to cover just about every possible bug that might be getting at him, these are going to be the ones that we go for. Maybe they'll get narrowed by the next dose of antibiotics or tomorrow. But for now, we need to come out firing and deliver those super broad spectrum antibiotics. All right.
1: If you have nothing else, I will say thank you so much. I hope that was very helpful for the students uh, listening. It was definitely helpful as a reminder and review from me. I really
0: appreciate your time, uh, Brian. Yeah, hopefully everybody out there loves listening to talk about questions as much as we love talking about questions. Absolutely.
1: And when will the uh, full question breakdown be available?
0: Uh, this second one, probably later this month. All right. So look for that in the
1: show notes as a link if we are able to release this after the time it's published. So check that out. Brian, you are welcome back anytime time to do this.
0: Thanks. It was fun. Like I say, I, I like talking about it and doing these questions way more than the next person. So might as awesome. well do it. All right, man. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll do it again sometime. Awesome. Bye. All right. See you, Patrick. All right.
1: Thanks for listening. And now before we end, a brief word from our friends at Med School Tutors. Our friends at Med School Tutors understand that with great talent comes great responsibility. You had an excellent education. You worked really hard and have the scores to prove it as well as some pretty hefty loan balances. How about making some extra money by sharing your superior exam-taking skills with medicine's next round of superheroes? Use your powers for good, and get paid. Isn't that in the Hippocratic Oath somewhere? Let med school tutors be a part of your origin story. Together, we can save the world. So if you're interested in becoming a med school tutor, go to medschooltutors.com slash careers. They really are a great company with great people, and helping underclassmen and colleagues with particular struggles is an incredibly rewarding way to use your expertise, which you have now after a couple years of med school under your belt, can be a great thing for your life. Thanks to Rao Reynolds and Enter Shikari for letting us use the track Anesthetist off the 2015 album, The Mind Suite. We'll see you back next week for some more high yield learning.